We broke away last week for Easter in 1 Corinthians 15, but we're back in Luke this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one there in the back of the pew for you. Uh, We're in verses 31 through 35 this morning and looking at the concluding verses of this chapter that we've been working our way through over the last couple weeks. And I want to just confess to you up front that uh, I attempted to get through all of it, but we will not today. We will have to come back. Uh, We've been really tracking Jesus on his journey to Jerusalem as he's been sort of weaving his way from town to town and village to village, teaching and preaching the kingdom of God. For that was the purpose for which he was sent. And as we've been going along, we've seen these frequent encounters with the religious leaders of the day known as the Pharisees. The Gospel of Luke mentions the Pharisees uh, second only to that of Matthew's Gospel. But if you'll recall, the Pharisees were the primary teachers in the synagogues. Their name, Pharisee, simply means the separate ones. But they were the ones that were trying to battle the influence of the Greek culture called Hellenism that had pervaded the land of Israel since the time of Alexander the Great. And they were responsible for teaching the Torah and the Mishnah to the people of Israel, the written law of God and the running commentary on the law that burdened the people with endless rules and regulations. There were some 613 commands in the Torah alone. And then you add on top of that the Mishnah, which told you exactly and precisely how you were to live each of those 613 commands. You, it taught you how to live that out to the T. And so those numbered right around 6,000 additional commands. And you were left with a very burdensome, a very confusing system, much like we might look at our U.S. tax code and have to pay someone $500 to do your taxes. But when Jesus was always in constant conflict and controversy with them, because the Pharisees were the architects and the engineers, no offense to those of you in the room, uh, they were the engineers of this massive system that they thought would make them righteous and holy. But it actually, what it did was it kept people out of the kingdom of God rather than help them in. He went even so far as to pronounce a series of woes to them, very strong language to them back in chapter 11, essentially condemning them. And then Jesus even warned his disciples about their pervading negative influence time and time again, telling them to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees back at the beginning of chapter 12, meaning don't let them influence you with their dead system. But the Pharisees, they returned the favor in kind, and they denounced Jesus as a blasphemer in John chapter 10, verse 33. They called him a liar in John 8, 13. They said that he was fraternizing with sinners in Luke 7, 39. They claimed that he was a sinner himself in John 9, 24. And they even went so far as to say that Jesus was demon-possessed and in league with Satan in John 10:20 and Luke 11:15. But their hatred of Jesus went far beyond just name-calling and accusations to the extent that the Pharisees and many others sought to kill him. 
When he was born, Herod the Great attempted to exterminate him by killing all the male children born at that time, hoping to eliminate him by casting this net of death out, killing every male child that was two years or younger. And when Jesus entered the temple in Jerusalem to cleanse it of the money changers and the merchants that were there making money, he overturned their tables and he he drove them out with a scourge of cords, it says, driving them out of the temple. And when they came to him, they said, by what authority are you doing these things? His reply indicates that he knows that they had a desire to kill kill him because he says to them in John chapter 2, verses 13 and 17, he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the temple, we're told later in verse 21, is that it would be his body. Even the people of his own hometown, Nazareth, they wanted to throw him over a cliff after he had entered the synagogue there and he had read from Isaiah and he told them that what he had just read had been fulfilled in their hearing. And the text from Isaiah chapter 61 described the Pharisees as spiritually poor, blind, captive, and oppressed. He, wanted, he went on even further. He told him, he said, you know what? You're just like your ancestors who rejected the word of God so much so that Elijah and Elijah went and ministered to a couple of penitent Gentiles instead in Luke chapter 4, which caused these Pharisees to become infuriated with Jesus to the extent that they were ready to kill him. And yet he slipped through their midst escaping their murderous rage. To say it gently, they were not on friendly terms with Christ. And so with that foundation in mind, I want us to look at our text this morning, and I want us to dig a little deeper and see exactly what is here for us to know and understand about the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we can really read this text and think that this is just some isolated event. This is just some conflict that he had with the Pharisees. This is just some random event or, or that Luke just threw this in and maybe sort of connect some events together and help his writing flow a little better. But we should never, ever really read the Bible that way. We must remember that this is the Word of God. This is not just a record in history, because it most certainly is that. But this shows us something about mankind, but more importantly, this shows us something about Christ. This is one of the great questions that you can ask when you are reading sacred scripture, and it is this. What does this show me about Christ? What does this reveal to me about my Lord? What is here in this text that I need to believe and to obey and to submit myself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Those are the questions you should be asking as you read the Bible. So with that background and those those questions before us, let's read our text together this morning, beginning in verse 31 of Luke chapter 13. I want to invite you to stand, if you're able to do so, for the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 31. God's inspired and errant. An infallible word says this. Just at that time, some Pharisees approached, saying to him, Go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox. 
Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Behold, your house is left to you desolate, and I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you might enrich our minds and our hearts with the majesty of Christ this morning. Help us to see plainly the greatness of our Savior. Lord, help us to cast off the things of this world that so easily entangle our minds and let us be singularly focused on you this morning. Help us to learn of your truth and obey you. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If you were to uh, travel to London, England, you would find a cemetery there by the name of Bunhill Fields. That is the burial ground for some 120,000 plus people. It's an old cemetery that's been around for about a thousand years and many of the Puritans are buried there in what used to be a cemetery located outside the city limits many, many years ago. As time has moved on, the city has grown since that time more and more. It now surrounds that cemetery on all four sides today. But initially, It was outside and away from the city limits. In the year 1662, England had attempted to unify the church by prescribing the ceremonies and the rites that the church should follow and practice and use what is known as the Book of Common Prayer. The Act of Conformity, as it was called, was mandatory for you to affirm and formally adopt if you were going to serve within the government or even serve within a church. But when it came out, some 2,000 ministers refused to adopt it and comply with the act because they thought the Church of England was too Catholic light, like it did not go deep enough in their reforms of the church. If you've ever seen the Anglican Church today, the service there, you would understand why. And yet these ministers were essentially kicked out of their pulpit which led to what we know as today as the Great Ejection of 1662. But not only were they kicked out of their pulpits, they were kicked out of the city so that they wouldn't have any influence on the general populace of England. But Parliament, they weren't quite satisfied just yet. In 1664, they passed another act called the Covenantic, excuse me, Conventicle Act, which basically forbade anybody gathering together, five or more people who weren't related together from meeting for any kind of unauthorized worship uh, together. No Bible studies, no uh, small groups, no family hymn sings. It was forbidden. Well, in the following year, in 1665, they had to go a little further and they passed, the easy, this one's easier to say, the Five Mile Act, the Five Mile Act. And this was passed in order to prevent 
any non-conforming minister from even coming within five miles of any incorporated town. You had to live out and away from the city in the country or the city or, or anything like that. But they were really, really serious about keeping these Puritan ministers from coming near the masses. But even that wasn't enough. Whether you were alive or even if you were dead, they didn't want you around. So as a a statement or a declaration of your non-existence, when you died, your corpse wasn't even allowed to come into the town to be buried within the city limits. It was an ultimate sign of rejection. It was a slap in the face that if you did not conform to the Church of England, you were exiled whether you were alive or whether you were dead. And so they constructed this cemetery in which you could be buried outside the city limits called Bunhill Fields. Some of the great Puritans that are there are such as John Owen, who is known as England's Calvin, Isaac Watts, who was the father of English hymnodies, John Gill, who preached at the same church that Charles Spurgeon had preached at a hundred years before. Susanna, or excuse me, Sarah Wesley, the mother of John Wesley, and even John Bunyan, the author of The Pilgrim's Progress, the best-selling book of all time next to the Bible itself. Ever since it has been published, it has never gone out of publication. But to be kicked outside of the city, or even when you were dead, not allow you to be buried within the city limits, was the greatest repudiation and the rejection that anyone could do to dismiss you as a non-existent person. This was not a new concept. In fact, it was a very old concept that occurred even in Jesus' day. We see that with the martyr Stephen. It says in Acts 7.58, he was driven outside the city to be stoned to death after he had preached to the Jews the gospel of Christ. But more importantly, our Lord Jesus knew of this rejection because the Jews of his day did the exact same thing to him in Jerusalem. For it says in Hebrews 13.12, it says, Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. It was a sign of rejection. It was a statement of disdain and repudiation of Christ. By driving Jesus outside of the city, it was the ultimate rejection of the Jews of the Messiah. 1 Peter 2.7 says that Christ is a stone which the builders rejected. They said, we will have none of it. If, it was as if they were saying to him, we reject your teaching." We reject your claims. We reject your messiahship. And therefore, we reject you. And yet, knowing that this would be his destiny, knowing that this would be his outcome, knowing that he would be rejected and crucified, Jesus Christ willingly, volitionally, and lovingly went to Jerusalem to suffer and die for us. I want you to really think about that this morning. This text here is not about Herod Antipas. This text here really isn't so much about the Pharisees. But what this text is about, ladies and gentlemen, is the height and the depth and the width and the breadth 
that the love of Jesus Christ has for you. This text is about the degree to which Christ will go to secure your salvation. And the degree to which Christ will go to your, secure your salvation for all eternity is to go to Jerusalem. It is to go and suffer. It is to go and be beaten with fists. It is to receive a crown of thorns and to be crushed down on his head. It is to have his beard ripped out and to be spat upon. It is to have his side pierced with a spear. It is to be rejected by men and to be painfully crucified and hung on a cross to die and pay for the penalties of your and my sins. And you say, I don't quite see that in this text. Where do you get that at? We see this in verse 31 where it says that Herod wants to kill you. We see this in verse 32, where it says that Christ must reach his goal, meaning the cross. We see this in verse 33, where it says that it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. We see this in verse 34, where it says that Jerusalem is a city that kills the prophets and stones them. This text reeks of death and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that he would willingly, knowingly, and lovingly go through for you. Christ knows that people want to kill him. Christ knows that he has a goal. Christ knows that he must perish. Christ knows that he must go to Jerusalem to be killed. And yet, beloved of God, even though he knows all of this, he says that I must do it. For the sake of you, I must lay down my life. I must have you and have you I must. Even if I have to shed my blood on the cross for you, I will do it. Even if I have to be rejected. Even if I have to be beaten. Even if I have to be pierced. No suffering, not even death itself, will overcome the love that I have for you. Think about that. Think about that this morning. The Lord of glory, the prince of life, the creator of the the sustainer of all things, who is the beloved of the father, the king of kings, the Lord of lords says, I cannot and I will not take my heart and my mind off of the work of your redemption. I must go to Jerusalem. I must pay for your sins and I must have you as mine for all of eternity. This is what this text is about. He knows what lays by help before him. He knows that he must die. He knows that he has a goal and a plan and a purpose set before him. And he says, I will go no matter what no man may say he will do to me. John Bunyan once wrote in his book, All Loves Excelling, he says this, Christ's death for us was so virtuous that in the space of three days and nights, he reconciled to God in his flesh every one of God's elect. He presented himself to the justice of the law, standing in the stead, place in the room of all he undertook for, and he gave his life a ransom for many, abolishing death taking away the sting of death, obtaining for us the gift of the Holy Spirit, and taking possession of heaven for us. It is fit that we should believe this. We should rejoice in this. We should talk of this. We should tell one another of this and live in the expectation of our own personal enjoyment of this. 
And as we should do all this, so we should bless and praise the name of God who has put over this house, this kingdom and inheritance into the hand of so faithful a friend, yea, a brother and a blessed Savior. All of these things are the fruit of his sufferings. And his sufferings, the fruit of his love, which passes all knowledge. Oh, how we should bend the knee before him and call him tender father. Yea, how we should love him and we should obey him and we should devote ourselves unto this service and be willing to be sufferers for his sake. To whom be the honor and the glory forever. Amen. Christ knows what lays before him. He knows what is ahead of him for his life. He knows the goal in which he has. And his goal is so that he might have you forever. That he might lay down his life. That the wrath of God would be laid upon him. And all of the worst of us, our very sins, thrown upon his broad shoulders. And the very best of him, in turn, given to us the righteousness of Christ, so that we may stand before God, holy and blameless. This, this is what this is about. He knows where he must go. He knows what he must do. And he says, I will have you. Do you know the magnitude of this love that Christ has displayed for you? Do you know of the greatness of this gift that God has freely given you in the death of his beloved son, Christ Jesus? Does your heart need uplifting this morning? Then look upon Christ. Look upon the fountain of love that is so full, so complete, so endless, so sweet, so steadfast, so eternal, that it is found in the willingness of our Savior, Christ Jesus, to suffer and die for you. Look to Christ. Lift up your countenance. Because our Lord, He is headed for His death in Jerusalem. It will be on His terms. And it will be on His timetable. And it will be of His own will. And we see that laid out when the Pharisees, they come to him. It says they approach him in verse 31. It says, just at that time, some Pharisees approached saying to him, Go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. So first of all, we need to remember that the Pharisees were not on friendly terms with Jesus here. In fact, the Pharisees weren't really on friendly terms with Herod Antipas either. Moreover, all the parties here involved are actually in conflict with one another. And so we mustn't pretend as we read this and think that the the Pharisees are trying to do Jesus a favor here by warning him that Herod wants to kill him. They would like to kill kill him themselves, but they don't want to do it in such a way as to appear the ones to be doing it and, and take the blame. But we don't know if in actuality the Pharisees were sent by Herod as messengers or if there's some sort of collusion going on here. It could be that they, they made this up in order to try and put a little fear into Jesus, or they were trying to deceive him. But either way, one thing is for sure, and this, that is this, is that their motivation is that they want Jesus away from them. They want him gone. 
And so they tell Jesus that Herod wants to kill him and that he should leave. Now, this wouldn't be too far-fetched of a story to, to believe in because anyone who knew Herod knew that he has proven himself to be a murderer already. This is not Herod the Great, who was the great builder and who was around during the birth of Jesus and a little nuts himself and sent his soldiers to go out and kill every male child two years and under. But this is one of his sons, Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was the openly immoral ruler who had John the Baptist beheaded when he was confronted about his affair and marriage with his brother Philip's wife, Herodias. And Herodias wanted him dead and asked that John the Baptist's head be brought on a platter. And so Herod Antipas obliged and he had John the Baptist executed. So it would not be a a stretch of the imagination to hear that Herod Antipas would want to kill Jesus because he's already known as a murderer. Everybody knows this. So whether the Pharisees wanted Jesus out of the way or whether, uh, whether Herod really wants Jesus dead, Christ is unmoved by this. He's unfazed. It says in verse 32, he says, He said to them, Go tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. Now, Jesus is not in the least bit intimidated by this threat. In fact, Jesus would never be intimidated by anyone's threats ever. Psalm chapter 2, speaking of our Lord, it says this, Why are the nations in an uproar, and the people devise a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord scoffs at them. Basically, this is like saying, You've got to be kidding me. This is a futile thing that you've devised here. You think you're going to come against the creator of the universe and prevail? I think one rapper said it uh, that I've heard. It says, this is like someone coming with a super soaker squirt gun against Spain in order to conquer it. It's, it's, it's futile, right? And so Jesus doesn't tremble in his boots in the least bit. But he tells the Pharisees, hey, I want you to go give Herod a message for me. Tell that fox, or basically that sneaky, conniving little pest, that I've got a message for him. It would like, be like for someone uh, in our day today calling someone a varmint. Someone who's not noble, someone who's not necessarily powerful, but just someone who's a meddler, someone who's crafty. But basically, Jesus says, tell that fox that I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. I'm going to keep healing people. I'm going to keep casting out demons, and none of which is really hurting you anyway. But I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing on my timetable, it says, until I reach my goal. I'm going to continue my ministry. But isn't it interesting that in talking about his death here, his burial and resurrection, that Jesus calls it his goal. Death is his goal. And the word there for goal means to make complete, to bring to close or a fulfillment. Essentially, what Jesus is saying here is that his life's work, it's ahead of him. His reason for coming to earth is laid out before him. 
John 4, 34, Jesus described it as this. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. It's what will sustain him and it's what will keep him and he will not rest until he brings it to completion. But even in John chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus says of his death, he says, no one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. And this commandment I have received from my father. You see, what he's saying here is Herod has no power. Herod has no authority, but only what has been granted to him by God. You're like a little fox who can't kill anything, but you can only cause trouble. I'm going to lay down my life when I'm good and ready. Because ultimately, I have the power to lay down my life. Acts 4, 27 and 28, we've read this before. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, right? Everyone, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. His life's work His purpose in coming to earth was ordained by the Father and laid out before him. And not even Herod's threats or intimidations were going to change Jesus' plans in the slightest. He has a goal set before him. He has something that he wants to finish and accomplish. But in verse 33, Jesus gets even more specific about this goal and speaks prophetically about the location of of his crucifixion. He says in verse 33, Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. If there is one thing that Jerusalem has become famous for, it was for killing divine messengers. And in a bit of irony, the city of Jerusalem the city of God, the place where sacrifices were made at the temple, the center of Jewish worship would be the very city where the final sacrifice would be made in the death of Jesus Christ. Because they were known to kill their prophets. According to tradition, Isaiah was sawn in two during Manasseh's reign by sticking him in a log and then cutting him in half, of which we can find part of it in Hebrews 11.37. In 2 Chronicles 24, verses 20 through 22, Zechariah, the prophet, was murdered. It says this, Then the Spirit of God came on Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest. And he stood above the people and said to them, Thus God has said, Why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord and do not prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he also has forsaken you. So they conspired against him, and at the command of the king, they stoned him to death in the court of the house of the Lord. Thus, Joash, the king, did not remember the kindness with which his father Jehoiada had shown him, but he murdered his son, and as he died, he he said, May the Lord see and avenged. But Jesus says, There I must go. There I must go to suffer and be crucified. I must fulfill God's plan from all of eternity according to his divine counsel and reach Jerusalem and be handed over to sinful men to die 
on the cross. Now, beloved, we must stop there this morning. Time in my week would not allow me to go any further in studying this text and understanding it completely, and I think it would be an absolute disservice to God if we were to just gloss over the next two verses that we have in our text just to complete them and get them done. Because I think it's vitally important that we slow down and look at how God is like a shelter to us in verse 34, like a a hen who gathers her brood under her wing. I want us to understand that and and understand it more completely and deeply in light of the times and the struggles that we all face. But I want us to also see the majesty and the compassion of the heart of Christ in these last two verses, and I simply cannot blow by that. So hopefully, that will whet your appetite a bit to come back in two weeks, Lord willing, as I come in the pulpit again. But we have a dedicated, steadfast Savior. We have a Redeemer who will not be dissuaded from going to Jerusalem to die in our place. No threats of man, no schemes of hell will take our Savior off of his course and take him off away from his goal. And that is to go to the cross and to redeem us from the curse of the law that was hostile against us. No amount of suffering is too great to deter him. And so, beloved, what love is this that Christ has for us? How in the world should we measure the expanse of the love of Christ that he would do such a thing for us? How can we value the mercy we have received from our King? Let us this day pour out our hearts in thankful praise and gratitude for him for coming from the Father, accomplishing His mission, and demonstrating the extent of His love for us by dying on the cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I recognize the feeble attempt to communicate the vastness and the depth and the magnitude of the love of Christ that he has demonstrated for us by dying on the cross. God, just help us to understand this more completely so that we can walk in obedience to you. That we can go through our week thankful, praising our Savior all the day long, grateful for his sacrifice, grateful for his dedication ever before us so that we may worship you not just here on a Sunday morning, Lord, but through the week. Oh, Lord, write this on our hearts. Emblazon this on our minds, how much Christ loves us. That even when we fail through the week, Christ loves us. Lord, Give us a greater apprehension of the love of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.